Ephesians 5. Do not literally stop getting drunk on wine. Now, the background of this city was drunkenness because they had the Bacchus festival to the goddess Dionysus. So getting drunk was a form of their pagan worship in Ephesus. And so there's a strong connection there. But stop doing that, he tells them. Instead, be getting yourselves filled by the instrumentality of the Spirit. He is telling them in the context, all believers are to be walking in the will of God. Verse 17, God wants you walking in his will. But ethics without enablement is law. To tell me to do without giving me the power to do is law. Command me the best ethics in the world. If I can't do it, you just put me under law, and that will keep me condemned. God commands and he enables. And his enablement is the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life. And unless you are cutting off that ministry, shutting it down through sin, uh, unyieldedness, uh, saying no to the Spirit of God, he will be the enabling power for the Christian life. The Christian life is not difficult. It is impossible. It can only be lived by the power of the Spirit through a yielded life. Now, something that is interesting just by contrast, that uh, if you study pharmacology on alcohol, you'll find out it's a depressant. And what's quite interesting, don't come under the influence of that which will depress you and produce debauched behavior. And the word for behavior that is debauched, it's the word wasteful. The uh, prodigal wasted his substance. That drunkenness wastes the life. You don't do much that's right when you're drunk. In contrast, the spirit is a stimulant, not a depressant. And it's the only way you'll live a productive life and deliver you from wasting your life. Only the spirit-filled life is productive. The life apart from the spirit does nothing but produce wood, hay, and stubble, and that which God cannot approve. So he's saying, get yourselves under the influence of the spirit. Let me say this. Of all the works of the spirit, the only one we're commanded to see that it happens is this work. He never commands you to be baptized in the Spirit. It happens. Never commands you to be indwelt. You're indwelt. Never commands you to be sealed by the Spirit. You're sealed. They're auto, automatic, once for all. They're there. You may not know it, but it's there. But Spirit filling is the only work of the Spirit. He commands us to be sure it's taking place. And he tells us things, don't grieve the Spirit, don't quench him. So this work of the Spirit is not automatically in all believers. It's something you may not, when I look out on you today, I, I don't know how many of you might be under the control of the Spirit right now. I don't know who may not be. Uh, but every time I'm with a bunch of believers, I'm thinking, I sure hope they're under the control of the Spirit because that makes them relationally uh, wise, 
It makes them enjoyable to be with, and I might sense Christ. But where the spirit is grieved and where he's quenched, it's a different kind of uh, interaction. And so um, let me just repeat some things I already said the last time we looked at this. It's a command. So you're either obeying that or not. It's not assumed. I command you, be filled with the Spirit. So only sin or unyieldedness would make us disobey that. Two, it's not a once-for-all filling. Filling is never once-for-all. You can see it in the book of Acts. They were filled repeatedly. It's a repeated thing. So it's be continuously under the control of the Spirit. Uh, it is said to be a passive thing to the believer. It's something that has to happen to us. You, you don't fill yourself. You need the person of the Spirit to fill you. He's not a, a substance. He's a person. He wants to fill and control the life. And you see the many passages that tell us, walk in the Spirit, walk in love. That's how you carry out this filling. Then uh, he says something that's interesting here. And I want to show five things that he wants to fill you with uh, right out of this book. He says there, be filled with the Spirit. And the little preposition there uh, is an instrumental. And it would be translated this way. Be getting yourselves filled or under the control of the Spirit. But he would translate this way. Be filled by the instrumentality of the Spirit. And here's the thing I think I want to look at with you. What does the Spirit want to fill you with? Is there any, it's not just be filled with the Spirit. It's really be filled by means of the Spirit. Be filled with what? Well, a, a great example, of course, is Galatians 5, that Spirit that produces the fruit of the Spirit. That's one of the most obvious but I'm going to take you back in this epistle where when Paul was praying for the believers in chapter 1 and chapter 3, there was five things he asked God to fill the believers with that only happens as a result of the Spirit filling you. He's the instrumentality that fills you with the five things Paul has mentioned up to now. Go to chapter 1 to see his prayer and what he asked God to fill these believers with. Chapter 1, verse 15. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the Spirit, this is the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of wisdom and revelation, show you things you've never seen before. That's what revelation, make it plain, so that you may know, and to quote that theologian Rollins, Epigonosco, so that you may experientially know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know. Let's just stop there. The first thing he's praying for, these believers, and he wants them to be filled with, 
is the Spirit of God teaching the believer things they've never yet seen before, and yet he's praying for believers. These are saved people. He's not praying for them to be saved. They're already saved. But it's amazing how ignorant of what God has done for you. You can be so ignorant of it and be saved for years. Uh, it, it is astounding to see perpetual babyhood among believers. It's the line I grew up with. They're so old in God, you have to part their whiskers to give them a bottle. That if we dress Christians in the church by their spiritual maturity age, many of you would be wearing diapers to the service. And yet you say, I've been saved 20 years. Do you know any more than when you began? How are you doing in the Word? What do you mean? I had a pitiful situation. I had to do a funeral for a family that had moved away from this church, and they'd gotten out of church, and the husband had been killed. And so I was asked to do the funeral. And uh, by the time I'm dealing with the widow and the children that remain, people who had grown up in this church, whatever, uh, the woman said, please tell me about the resurrection. I forgot it. I mentioned rapture. Tell me what that is. Tell me what this is. Tell me what our hope is. And I said, you mean you don't remember? She said, I forgot it all. I, I, I think I heard it sometime, but I couldn't tell my boys. My boys don't know about it. It, it has slipped away. And here Paul is praying. I'm asking that God would give you believers an inner enlightened through the ministry of the Spirit that he would be teaching you the things of God. The Spirit of God is a teacher. Are you attending classes? Are you learning? Uh, you know what? Much of the counseling that we've had, uh, both Rich and I, we, we talk and pastors talk, the repeat people that always are coming, they never seem to get it sometimes because it's a matter of disobedience. It starts with ignorance, but it usually winds up being disobedience to truth. God's people are to be informed and taught by the Holy Spirit. You ought to say, the Spirit taught me this. I remember when I was going through Dallas, some guys, when they found about, knew about my background and where I'd grown up and the groups I'd run with, they said, how did you ever get here at the Mecca of Bible studies? How in the world did you ever make it into Dallas? I said, well, the, the Holy Spirit illuminates in California, too, even the Bay Area. But weren't you an Arminian? Weren't you a Pentecostal? Weren't you, wait, 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 wait. I was a Christian. And the Spirit lives in me. And some lessons, I attended class, and I got it. It took years. I had to be saved nearly 10 years before I found out what God did. I just thought I was zapped that night I got saved. And 10 years later, I said, you mean I got all of this that night? Yeah. And you know what's happening? The longer I go, I keep saying, you mean I got all of that? I got all of that. I'm this saved? 
I'm this saved. That's the Spirit keeps showing you what God has done for us in salvation. Now, there's three things he wants them to be enlightened to. Enlightened to hope, enlightened to riches, and enlightened to know God's power that's been made available and displayed in their life. Let's look at the first thing. I wish you would be enlightened so that you would know the hope connected with your calling. In order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. Hope. Now, hope is two-sided. It's subjective and objective. Uh, objective, the thing I hope in. Maybe the event. It's whatever I'm hoping in. Subjectively, it's my, uh, my soul temperature at the moment. A am I optimistic because I'm looking at these things in the future? Or am I pessimistic? Have circumstances buried me and I'm, uh, and I'm buried in the midst of it? If you read the New Testament, hope seemed to be the thing that got them through all their afflictions and their trials. They would keep abounding in hope while they were suffering. I've got hope. It's going to get better. It's going to get better. Romans 5 says, we glory, we exult in tribulation because our tribulation is working for us a hope, a hope that will not disappoint us. It will, the thing we're hoping for will be there in God's time. The disappointment is, I won't be ashamed that I believed in God and that I've hoped in God. I won't get up to this time and say, I was just kidding you. I couldn't come through. I said I was going to resurrect you, but I can't. I lost my power somewhere along the line. I said I would rapture you, but I, I, I canceled that. I made you all kinds of promises, but they won't ever be kept. Can never be. God can never lie. So what we're hoping in, the object, will be there. Now, you can get beat up along the ways and you lose hope. You lose hope. You're bare. All you see are the waves. All you see is the circumstances. And he said, I am praying for you that the Spirit of God will enlighten you so that you will be a people filled with hope. The hope that's attached to your being called to Christ in salvation. My favorite counseling verse is Romans 15, 13. May the God of all hope fill you with peace and joy while you are trusting or believing him so that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. When people come in for counseling, they need hope. They've, got a, uh, they've been told there's no cure or maybe the marriage has gotten so bad they don't think there's a way through it. But he said, while you believe God, the God who's characterized by hope, he fills his people with hope. The hopeful Christian is looking forward to heaven, looking forward to what they're going to get in. They haven't got everything yet. Romans 8, 23 says, we're groaning, in this present world, longing for our new body that's been bought at the cross, waiting to be manifest as the sons of God, which we really are, and we, while we're in the groan of this world, we are longing with great hope 
to the day we lay aside all earthly encumbrances. We are a people of hope, and the Holy Spirit fills you with hope. The Spirit fills you with hope. When you're in doubt, when you're pessimistic, when you're uh, questioning, all of that, that's not a product of the Spirit. You probably maybe have stopped praying about it, or uh, it got a wedge in your heart, and you start believing other voices, start saying, I'm not able, whatever. We talk ourselves into a thousand discouragements, but the Spirit of God, when He's filling you, He fills you with an optimism based on future promises of God that He will keep. God keeps His promises. He doesn't make any promise He will not keep. So, He wants Him to be filled with the Spirit, and by means of the Spirit, He'll fill you with enlightenment, he'll fill you with this hope. Then he says, I want you to understand the riches. Notice this is a kind of a seemingly hard verse, but get this. And that you would know the riches, watch this, of his glorious inheritance in the saints. I, for years, have wondered what that verse meant. When I read it slowly, it seems to make sense. That might be something helping your Bible. Go a little slower. Because I took it, I think my bias was, I wish you would be enlightened to see what the glorious inheritance you have received from God is. That's, that's my bias. That's what I thought it was saying. And it really makes easier sense to me. I wish you knew the riches of the inheritance you got, but he didn't say that. I wish you could see the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. What in the world is he saying? I call this being filled with uh, significance. What he is saying here? I wish you knew that you have made God rich by becoming something he calls his inheritance. You see, you are the reward that God the Son gave the Father when he purchased you out of sin. Chapter 1, God chose you, the Spirit uh, seals you, and the Son died to forgive you, so you were bought. You were bought. And you are this gift that Christ can give to the Father. Here are the people I bought with my own death. They've been bought, as it were, out of slavery to sin. And here, Father, here is your treasure. And the Father says, oh, it's your bride. It's the church. And what he's saying is, I wish you saints knew what God thinks of you. He counts you a part of his riches. That's how significant you are to him. You're, you've made him rich because you've been purchased at the price of his son, and anything his son had to die to purchase has become precious to the Father. The riches is, I mean, I, I had to stop trying to put the, it sounds almost sacrilegious, but he says, I wish you knew that you, to me, are part of the riches of my inheritance. 
He said this of Israel in Exodus 19. Israel, if you'll serve me, you will be as a treasure among all the nations to me. You'll be unique. You'll be like the apple of my eye. I will, you'll be my treasured people. Titus says it. He has purchased for himself a peculiar people, and that's old King James. It really means a people of his own possession. You were not bought with silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, slain as a lamb. Therefore glorify God in your body. You've become a holy nation, a, a, a priesthood to God. All of this, what he's saying is, you aren't just a bunch of bumpkins down in Ephesus. I had to go by way of the cross to ever make you mine. Do you know you're significant to me? I treasure you. I treasure you. You are the result of my son being willing to die in your place, and you become my rich inheritance. Matter of fact, for eternity, I will show you off as a model of what my grace and what my son did to give me a treasure. My people are my treasure. Are you one of his people? Are you significant then? There's a lot of, um, um, they say something about junior high ministry. I had a junior high pastor tell me that he'd rather work the junior hires any day than senior high. And he's now a senior, uh, senior pastor at a church and I said, uh, why, Rick? And he said, you specialist guy, Rick Bunshu. He said, because high schoolers get so independent, they get their phone, they get their driver's license, and they're cool. First girlfriend, and the youth leader can be a bother. It's a lot easier to get junior hires than high schoolers because they're, they're busting out their first drink, their first taste of sex, their first big night with a car by themselves. They're out there. They're very independent. I said, well, what? Man, I see junior hires as wiry, and how, you know, they all got ADD, you know, whatever that is. My dad had a cure for ADD. He just spanked me, and I just, it just came under control. Uh, but um, I said, well, well, Rick, tell me what the difference is. He said, you got these little sixth graders through eighth graders, they're, in, they're maybe entering puberty. They've got pimples, braces on their teeth. They're awkward. Uh, uh, the body has is, is got hormones jumping everywhere. They're in development. And, and if anyone will just pay any good attention to them, they feel like a million bucks because they, they feel so awkward at that age. Now, when they get a little bit older and get through puberty and look pretty and handsome, I don't need your approval. I am God's gift to women, you know. Uh, but down there, and I think of this persecuted church and of believers fleeing in the Roman Empire and being treated as the scum of the earth, thrown into lion's dens, their pastors dressed in animal skins and thrown in the Circus Maximus. And all of a sudden, God says, by the way, Ephesians, I wish the Spirit of God could show you how significant you are to my heart, how much I've got invested in you. The old Moravian missionary model, 
He will go and suffer to go to the nations to see the reward of Christ's sufferings. You people are all the reward of Christ's suffering, so the Father treasures you. You are significant. I wish you knew how rich you've made me. I, I stopped at the computer and just wept. Can it be? And that was the psalm that came to my mind. And can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Would you leave your home in glory and come down? He did. He did. I see so many beat-up saints, worthless, insignificant, they feel. All of our fears and phobias. He said, I just wish the Spirit of God would show you what you really mean to me. Think about it. Maybe get in a mirror sometime on your worst day and say, God invested the Son in me. God invested Calvary in me. He calls me his riches. I usually want his riches. How about alone, God? Here he says, you are my riches. I'm interested in you. Uh, the next thing he tells them, since we must tear, care, carry on, uh, he says, I wish you knew the power of God, the power, and he goes on to give you the measurement. It's the power that was exerted when he raised Christ from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. See, his resurrection wasn't complete until he was seated because being seated meant the work's finished. The priest in the Old Testament had no chairs in the tabernacle. There was no place to set out. No chairs in Solomon's temple. They were never finished. They were always on their feet. When my son died and ascends, set down, it's completed. Now we turn all authority over to him, and he rules it from a throne. He's not standing, only on exceptional cases when he welcomes the first martyr of the church, Stephen, he stood up. But not for redemption, but to welcome. So he's seated, and he's raised. He's at far above rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that could be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet, and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. And there's just, is there enough power for me to live for Christ? There's enough power to raise a corpse. There's enough power to take him through all the heavens above all demonic authorities and realms, seat him on the throne, give him all authority, Rain from heaven, and this is the same power I have made at the disposal of my people. And he goes in chapter 2 to illustrate it. Don't you know it was this power that quickened you when you were dead in sins and trespasses? He made you alive when you were a corpse towards him. You were dead. 
You couldn't get out of the coffin box. You couldn't even make an attempt to get next to God. You don't find God, God finds you. If you found him, you'd be dead. You wouldn't know what to do. He revives the corpse, and he says in chapter 2, this is the kind of power that indwells every believer. Is that enough to help you overcome your temper? Is that enough to help you get along with your wife, your kids, your cat and dog? Yeah, there's enough power. There's not an absence of power. It's just getting the elephant off the air hose. If you quit standing on the power line or plug it in, plug it in, there's more power than you can stand. Imagine telling me, if I could just stand at the tomb while Christ is being resurrected, I, I just can't imagine, even in Acts 1 when they saw him ascend, and they just kind of, wow. And then God just say, by the way, that's the kind of power you've got in, in you now. You're kidding. I'd be trying to jump. I'd be trying, I'd take that Superman cape and just like, boom. No, 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 no. You're going to need power to get along with your wife. Whoa. I thought it was for resurrection. Well, you'll think you're trying to resurrect something. It's power to get along. It's power to serve. It's power to be bold for me in Acts 1. That power broke out all over. There's more power at the disposal of the believer than he's tapping because he ends chapter 3, verse 20. Now unto him that's able to do exceedingly above anything you ask or think according to the power that's working in you. Is that power working in you, dear child of God? If it's working in you, it's an abundant life. It's an abiding life. You'll have fruit. You'll have effects. It is a life governed by the supernatural. It's a supernatural kind of life. And conservatives say, well, boy, you're sounding almost like you've been running with Benny Hinn. No, I've been running with Ephesians. I've been running with God. How about you? Uh, quit making God some atrophied, uh, impotent kind of God. He's omnipotent, and that spirit is in me to fulfill everything God expects of me. The power is in God, and it's in the believer. Let's look at one other thing. Since we've uh, got to keep moving, he touches the power theme in chapter 3 again. 314, but he expands it by adding one other dimension. 314, for this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through the Spirit. I'm praying for you that the Spirit will enable you to know this that you'll have it in your inner being, and evidence of this power is that you will make Christ feel at home in your heart. It's kata oikos. He will settle down and feel welcome. Have you ever been in a home that you didn't feel welcome? I mean, I want to climb out the bathroom window. What am I doing here? He said in Proverbs, it's better to sit down to a table of vegetables where there's peace than to sit down with a fattened calf where there's contention. If you don't feel welcome in a house, it's a miserable experience. 
But he says here, when the Spirit is controlling you, guess what? There's one guest you can know who feels at home, Jesus Christ. Spirit filling is to make Jesus feel welcome and at home in your life. Robert Munger wrote the little book years ago, My Heart, Christ's Home. And he says, are there any rooms in your life that he's not at home at? Do you have something hidden in the basement of your life you don't want him to see? What's going on in the front room of your life? And he takes the whole illustration of all the rooms of the You got a closet where you're hiding some playboys? You got a closet where you're hiding some secret sin? Why, the Spirit wants to fill you with the power, the power that makes the Savior feel at home in you. It's a terrible thing when you know Christ feels restless in you because you keep grieving the Spirit. The Spirit will make Jesus caught up down according to at home. He'll make you feel at home. And then he says, and I pray that you'll be rooted, established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide. It's wide enough to take in Jew and Gentile. It's long enough to last for eternity. It's high enough to get you to heaven and deep enough to find you in your sin. That you would know this love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness. There's our word. All the fullness of God, same Greek word, play right, oh. He wants to fill you with the fullness of God. And you know what? We never know you're full of God until you're full of love. Uh, I, uh, I don't want to, this is too glorious a subject, but there's a lot of cranky saints. We call them gripers. Uh, and their problem is uh, they don't need a new church they need to make Christ feel at home. And they need, where is the love of God? You know what Paul said to the Corinthians? He said, it is, it is a strain to you to love me, 2 Corinthians 6. And the word for strain there means to have cramps. And to have cramps, they say it's an absence of space. You, you, your stomach's so full that you get, you get cramps. And, and we talk about bloating. We talk about those things. It's the space is taken up. And, and Paul said, would that God would enlarge your heart so that you could love me back. I'm sorry it's a strain to you to love. When the Spirit of God fills us, the love of God will overflow from us into the lives of others. I think of... Uh, uh, Two things. I just visited a, a sick woman pastor's wife recently who had a terrible fall and broke a bone here. And, and when I saw them, it came by total surprise. The bone broke, and then she fell. And uh, as I visited with her, uh, I said, uh, what are, you, what are you experiencing? Didn't know how long she, I think she's still in recovery. This would be now maybe two months. I said, uh, what are you feeling in this hospital bed? She said, you know, I was born with cerebral palsy. And uh, 
not until this hospital experience did I realize I've always carried some kind of resentment towards God for it. I've always wondered why. And I've, I've, I've held it against him. I didn't know that until here. Okay. I said, well, what, what's, uh, what's going on in this hospital for you? She said, she fills up. She said, I feel overwhelmingly loved and significant to him. It's like the love of God has finally gushed over me so that I drop all the hang-ups. I feel overwhelmed with the love of God for me. You must grasp this. What's been gushed abroad in our heart is God's love for us, not our love for him. What you must know in the worst day of your Christian life is you will never be loved less than when God loved you at the cross. And I'm afraid too many times Christianity is good at giving uh, karate chops and lousy at loving. And yet it's the dynamic. It is the way the world knows you've met Christ. I would that you would be filled with enlightenment by means of the Spirit. I would that you be filled with hope by means of the Spirit. I would that you be filled with the richness of your significance to God by the Spirit. I would that you would be filled with the power of God by the Spirit. I would that you would be filled with the love of God by means of the Spirit. It's only the Spirit-filled life that these things can happen. Enlightenment, hope, riches, power, love. I'm always touched by the story of Moody when he said, for years I used the Bible as ammunition to hurl at sinners, and I was glad to hurl and warn them of hell. It was not until Henry Morehouse preached in Chicago and the man preached John 3.16 every night and God started a revival in the church that I realized I was bankrupt in love. I was big on hell, big on judge, being judgmental, but I was small when it came to the love of God. And God broke my heart with the preaching of Henry Morehouse. I ask you, how you're doing on your love quotient toward God? Do you love him more than when you began? Ephesus left the first love, this little church. By 90 AD, they had left so that Christ threatens to remove their lampstand unless they return to loving him. That's probably the biggest issue in your life. The two greatest sins you could ever commit are both tied to love. These are the two greatest sins. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all your heart, mind, soul, and body. Not to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind is the greatest sin you'll ever commit. The second's likened to it. You shall love your neighbor with all your heart. Not to love your neighbor is the second greatest sin you can commit. Not adultery, not stealing, not murder. The failure to love God as God and to love fellow human beings as human beings. Those are the two greatest sins we commit. And only the Spirit can turn us from cranks, critics, and judgmental to being lovers of people and caring and telling them they're significant in the eyes of God. Our Father, as we prepare to take the Lord's table, may we rejoice Rejoice that the cross 
and the purchase of us by blood has, has made us your treasures. I, I'm overwhelmed by it, Lord. You said it. I, I don't know that I would have believed it. it uh, I can't get over that you count me a treasure. I who hated you, I who rebelled against you, I who have failed and sinned many a time, and now to be put in the status of God's riches, you count us as an inheritance from the cross of Christ. May we be filled with the Spirit to have hope, understand these riches, to know there's power and love toward us.